Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm here with Dr. Igor Grossman. He is an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Waterloo, Canada. He's been the recipient of several awards, including the 2015 Rising, Award, uh, Rising Star Award sorry, by the Association for Psychological Science, the 2015 President's New Researcher Award by the Canadian Psychological Association, the 2017 Early Career Award by the Ontario Ministry of Research, Innovation and Science, and the 2017 Outstanding Alumni Award by the International Max Planck Research School on the Life Course. Dr. Grossman is a behavioral scientist exploring the interplay of sociocultural factors for adaptive emotion regulation and wisdom in the face of daily stressors. So, Dr. Grossman, thank you a lot for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay, so today we're going to talk about emotion regulation and wisdom as well. But uh, just to start off with emotion, so just before we get into more specific topics about how people regulate their emotions and cultural factors that go into it, uh, I would like to ask you, uh, if you agree, because I've already had many evolutionary psychologists on the show, if you agree that uh, emotions are basically a set of cognitive tools that we have at our disposal that were the result of evolutionary processes and that we use in order to basically solve uh, issues related to reproduction and survival and socialization and things like that? Well, that, that would depend on how you would define emotions, which is uh, a very contentious topic, as you probably know. Uh, in psychology, in philosophy, in cognitive sciences, there are various uh, streams of thought about what constitutes an emotion. And... Um, now, if you take them more holistically in terms of the physiological response, the feelings, uh, the subjective experience, the process of assigning a label uh, to this experience, then all that together is probably unlikely to be just a product of um, evolutionary informed architecture, the cognitive architecture. But if you look at some specific aspects of that, that is, of course, um, not really even a question now that some of these processes, I would say, um, the cognitive basic uh, uh, underlying processes have evolved uh, to help us navigate the environment and so on and so forth. So it's like in some ways more like alarm systems and other types of uh, uh, ways to regulate us in the environment. I mean, we see that in other animals, we see that in humans. But all that depends on what you mean by emotion. And uh, uh, do you mean this more basic architecture, just simple responses? Or do you mean more specific, uh, fine-grained things that poets and philosophers often write about? Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. That is a very complicated question. And I've also interviewed people like Dr. Phoebe Ellsworth on the channel. And so, I mean, it's very complicated to arrive at what really are emotions. But would you say that at least we have uh, an innate aspect to emotions and perhaps then the way we regulate them and the way we express them uh, externally with other people or even to ourselves, then those are the parts that where probably they have some sort of uh, cultural or social influence. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, so you would agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, the uh, the question of uh, is there something that uh, is 
typical to humans and maybe even to other species that we share with other species in terms of how we react to the environment and that these reactions, uh, which may represent uh, cognitive uh, evolutionary informed underpinnings of emotions, uh, that they, they evolved over time, uh, over millennia, without doubts that there I don't disagree with anybody. I think uh, the question becomes more uh, where the disagreement comes in is, uh, well, how far can you push that idea? What exactly evolved? And uh, is it that we have specific uh, modules for specific uh, feelings and those are the basic feelings and everything comes from those, let's say, six or seven basic emotions? Or uh, is it more about some more primitive uh, coordinates, um, such as, you know, be it uh, valence, how positive or negative something is, arousal, how intense you feel things. Uh, maybe some people say novelty, if you feel surprise or not. And the rest is just, you know, in the uh, comes uh, the, the labels that you assign them to the emotions are just uh, the various combinations in a multi-dimensional space uh, that we construct in our head when we experience one or another situation. Well, that, that, that is where the debate comes in, right? Um, I do think that the idea of uh, this kind of basic emotions as really something that evolved is probably not very realistic uh, given the amount of evidence uh, but the idea that we have some kind of evolved capacities and reactions uh, are there, I, I would agree with every evolutionary psychologist or biologist on this topic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and how do we evaluate uh, an emotion? So let's say that we, to, that we want to evaluate something as love or anger. Uh, what do we do? Do we study people's behavior? Do we study how they report their emotional feelings? Do, do we add also perhaps imagiological studies through F, MRI and things like that to see what parts of the brain are activated when people report that they are experiencing a certain emotion. Uh, I mean, how do we do it exactly? Well, that, uh, that's a very good question. There are different approaches and uh, depends on whom you ask. Uh, they would uh, give you slightly different answers because uh, emotion is such a um, multi-dimensional question and a multi-dimensional construct, uh, ultimately you probably want to have more than just one or two measures. But let's assume that if the emotion, uh, if you assume that the emotion involves um, a physiological reaction, uh, a stimulus that comes from the environment, um, a subjective experience, and a labeling of that experience, then you need both the measures that would help you to uh, get at the labeling, measures that would help you to uh, assess the physiological experience, and that can be either autonomic physiology, if you're just basically interested in stress, or uh, maybe brain-related physiology, even though, well, we can get to that topic later. I have some doubts that that's the best measure, measure for affective process per se. Um, and, uh, and then you, of course, uh, need to look at the other uh, sociological and uh, social environmental factors because the stimuli come from somewhere. So you have to understand uh, uh, what exactly does that mean for a given person when they experience this um, um, reaction to a certain stimulus. And that can vary by culture, that can vary by the degree of your experience uh, over time. So if you want to really get the full picture, you need to capture more than just one or two. But that's a really difficult task. And uh, we don't have that many polymath anymore. Uh, people tend to specialize. And so people specialize either in physiology or in uh, more higher order processes or in cultural process. And then scientists also, people so quite often what happens that, that they start believing that that's all emotion is about. Mm 
Uh, so that's of course is a bias uh, driven by their level of expertise and maybe not having expertise in other domains. Uh, but uh, overall, I think uh, you need more than one measure, uh, more than one level of analysis, because the construct is so complex. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay, so I guess that we could say that in your work, you're very interested in the social-cultural influences on emotion and emotion regulation. So what are the cultural aspects that we have to consider that go into those aspects? Would you say that perhaps the way we culturally categorize and label emotions and perhaps what we socially consider to be proper expressions of emotions in certain contexts, that those are some of the things that we have to take into account when evaluating how culture and society influence emotion, emotion regulation, and emotion expression, perhaps. Right, so culture is another very big question. What is, what is culture? And... Um, when you look at the intersection of how culture may impact uh, or, or social process may impact uh, the way we react to something, then uh, we can start very top about what are the ideas and ideals that are emphasized. Um, for instance, I live in North America. I live in Toronto right now. And um, in North America, we emphasize being very happy. Um, which is, you know, that's like the American stereotype uh, of Hollywood uh, smile, so to say, right? And that comes at a cost, but uh, the point is that that doesn't occur everywhere. In uh, Americans have no concept of Fido, for instance, right? Like you don't have this kind of nostalgic uh, sense of uh, sometimes you want to listen to this music and so on that you have in Portugal. Russians have something similar. They emphasize this kind of more uh, negative focus brooding. Um, in other cultures, let's say in Japan and Korea, you have often the focus on having a balance between different emotions, not to be too happy, because that may lead to, uh, well, social costs. Other people may not like you expressing and bragging about yourself, but also you are kind of acutely aware that this sense of happiness will probably go down and then uh, you, you will be very unhappy and very miserable. So what I'm trying to say is that on a higher level, you have this differences in uh, potentially what you emphasize, e even with respect to such basic process as, you know, balance. Uh, do you want to be more on the one side of the spectrum, more on the other side of the spectrum in some situations, uh, or kind of in the middle, appreciate this kind of mixed feelings? Then the other uh, level is uh, what is uh, how people approach regulating the emotions. And uh, there, again, you see uh, dramatic cultural differences. They are more about training. Since early childhood, the socialization, what do, you, uh, what do you do when you feel bad? Do you just hide it and not show it to anybody? Don't express any of that? Or are you uh, trying to, you know, somehow work through it by either talking about it to somebody or in your head mentalizing the process and try to spin a positive story out of negative experience? And again, you see cultural differences where in some cultures you emphasize the suppression more. In other cultures, you emphasize this kind of uh, spinning of making positive, optimistic story out of negative experience. And over time, uh, what happens is that uh, people, of course, get training in one or another, depending on what is emphasized. And hence, uh, they may not feel, for instance, that badly about suppressing in one culture, because that's where it's emphasized. And in another culture, uh, if you ask somebody to suppress, you see that those people often uh, uh, have clinical issues as well, or clinical symptoms at least as well. So those would be sort of different levels, sort of high order level or level of practice. And then of course there are social constraints too. Uh, what does the culture allow you to do uh, when you, what kind of emotions, um, what kind of language do you have in the culture? Some cultures don't even have language for some uh, aggressive, for instance, uh, negative experiences. If you look at Polynesia, 
I think it's Micronesia actually, sorry. Um, there are some small scale societies where if you insult somebody, that person will start telling you that they um, feel sick in the stomach. They will not tell you that they are angry at you because they first don't have the proper word for it, at least not in the same way as we do in uh, uh, Indo-Germanic, Indo-European languages, but also it's just culturally sanctioned not to express this type of feelings. Uh, and hence, they start to uh, show uh, more of the symptoms uh, rather than uh, some kind of uh, a reaction towards the other person. Or another example, the final example along similar lines, in uh, North America and in Europe, uh, we have uh, currently a mental health epidemic. There are a lot of people who are uh, being diagnosed with clinical depression. And um, the examples, of course, of that are that you sort of ruminate and focus a lot on your inex negative experiences and you work through that and, uh, and so on and so forth. It's like negative, uh, negative thoughts about yourself. Well, it turns out if you look, for instance, at China, um, the diagnosis of depression may not work the same way because, again, people, instead of internalizing this type of negative thoughts, often uh, somatize them. So they rather would say that they feel sick in the stomach, that something hurts, that their head hurts, or their elbow hurts, or something like that. And that is often uh, actually more of a symptom of a larger uh, depression-related issue there, uh, but you would not be able to assess it if you use uh, the methods that have been developed in the West, right? So this is, the another, this is sort of another level at which uh, culture can operate. You may not have the language, uh, you may not um, have uh, the uh, strategy or different strategies are sanctioned, and um, you, you may not have the opportunity, for instance, to express it because the culture would tell you, no, you're not allowed to do that. Only bad people do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so still speaking about culture, I would now like to ask you about a paper that you published back in 2014 called uh, A Cultural Perspective on Emotional Experiences Across the Lifespan, where you basically compared uh, how emotional experiences changed in Americans and Japanese people throughout their lifespan. So could you tell us about that study and what were some of the main findings there? Sure. Uh, so this was uh, this is uh, back when I was a graduate student. Uh, I had the fortune of collaborating with some wonderful uh, researchers in Japan and in the United States. And uh, what we examined uh, uh, people's reactions to various uh, uh, mundane experiences they uh, encounter in their lives. So you present people with, let's say, 10 different situations that happened to them within the last few weeks, and then they report how uh, much they felt being angry, being upset, being happy, and so on and so forth, a whole list of different emotion terms. And so what's interesting about that study is that we had uh, people of different uh, age groups, both in a, a larger Tokyo metropolitan area and in Michigan, where I was at that time as a graduate student. So we had uh, large samples from Tokyo and from the United States in Michigan, and uh, we compared the responses on uh, various uh, emotion-related uh, questionnaires and other measures that get at uh, trait-level negativity, so to say. So like there's this rumination measure, interpersonal negativity, so like how many negative relationships and how intense are those relationships do people recall experiencing over the course of the last few weeks. And um, what's interesting is that in uh, one of the dominant theories in, uh, North, in North America about age differences uh, in affective experiences is such that is the theory that suggests that uh, when uh, people get older, uh, they start focusing on the positive. 
and they just ignore the negative. They 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 want to focus on here now. Their time horizon is shrinking. They're kind of getting old. Start thinking about death. That scares them. It's like, well, should I only that many years left? So why should I uh, deal with all that negative crap? Uh, let me just focus on uh, the good stuff and then my meaningful relationships with people I care about. I don't want to have this huge circle of people who are making me upset. I want to focus only on those who make me happy. Uh, and generally, I would focus on the positive experiences. And so, well, that's interesting, but that is kind of like so soaked in with this uh, North American Hollywood sort of ethos of positive is good. And we should emphasize the positive because that's the uh, that's what makes you happy. It's not the balance of you know different experiences. It's really the positive that is good. And I thought, well, let's see if that happens in Japan. So uh, we looked at the results, and uh, sure enough, in the U.S., we do find that. Uh, so, like uh, all the Americans, for instance, they report uh, less negative emotions in unpleasant situations uh, compared to younger Americans. And they also report uh, less uh, negativity, they ruminate less than younger Americans. So, think about negative stuff uh, repeatedly. And they report fewer uh, unpleasant relationships uh, uh, and interpersonal experiences than younger Americans. Okay, now what about Japan? There, no differences. And in fact, uh, if there was a difference, it was in the opposite direction. So what we did find is that older and younger Japanese kind of reported the same amount of negative emotions in unpleasant situations. But when you look at um, the uh, positive emotions in unpleasant situations, all the Japanese reported more of those than younger Japanese. Well, that was interesting. So it seems like so, uh, they, they kind of balance up the type of emotions, the type of situations, unpleasant situation, but they focus on the positive emotions there. And that's, of course, is an interesting strategy uh, to, um, to regulate your emotions. Uh, some, a strategy that is, not, uh, that is also common in North America, but maybe not the one that they would prefer because they just can focus on the positive. Um, but nevertheless, a sort of like a more optimistic strategy. And that's something that we did find in Japan, so which would be kind of consistent with the idea that maybe all the Japanese also focus on improving their well-being. But the notion of what is good for them is not about just focusing on the positive, but instead of that balancing positive with negative. So at least that's the interpretation. Now, one thing about this study is the cross-sectional study, meaning we just compare two groups. Uh, and making inferences about uh, longitudinal relationship, that is how people change over time by comparing two groups, is often a mistake. So we can just suggest that there is like age-related change, but really we didn't study change, we just studied different uh, groups of people. And it could be because the culture of younger Americans differs from the culture of older Americans, or it could be because when Americans get older, that's just a natural process. So that's something we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, and so I would also like to ask you if another factor that goes into how people experience emotions uh, is their worldview in terms of how they look at humanity in general and at other people and if they think that people in general are mostly bad or good or something in between perhaps. So uh, is it, for example, the fact that people might be uh, nihilistic or optimistic or pessimistic in regards to humanity and people's behavior? The, does that also influence uh, how they experience emotions? Um, that's a good question. Um, very interesting question. So to be honest, I I have no idea uh, about the specifics here because that's not uh, my area of expertise. I can tell you a few things that I know of and then that, the rest would be just a speculation. Uh, what I do know of is that uh, uh, what's remarkable is that we do, first of all, believe that uh, the core of the, even the pessimists, even the uh, uh, the people who 
uh, are misogynic and don't think that the world is a good place, uh, they actually believe that the core of somebody is still a good thing. So it's like the, when you ask people, um, for instance, uh, uh, what direction uh, are individuals more likely to change towards to, so like from good to bad or from bad to good, uh, people are more likely to say that the change from bad to good it represents the true self of the person as compared to the change from good to bad, even among the uh, very pessimistic individuals and in different cultures, including Singapore, Russia, or uh, Colombia uh, in South America uh, and North America, of course, as well. Now, uh, what are the consequences of being a pessimist for your world uh, of your worldview um, or, or cynical uh, for your emotions? Uh, well, uh, I can see how being uh, pessimistic and cynical can make you focus on the negative emotions more, uh, but I frankly haven't studied that in detail. Uh, that would be just a hypothesis that one can test, or maybe it has been tested already. Uh, now, the bigger question here uh, is more uh, a theoretical question, and that's the question of if worldviews are capable of changing your uh, immediate reactions to the environment. And um, I can see uh, why that could be the case, but I can also see uh, that that would require a few extra steps so that the, so the effect would not be that straightforward. And the reason why I mentioned that is because right now in psychology we uh, are becoming more sensitive to a more nuanced effects uh, and uh, sort of the simple statements of, let's say, uh, your uh, worldview impacts your behavior X or your reaction, your emotional reaction X uh, which have in the past been associated with concepts of social behavioral priming are uh, currently under uh, high scrutiny uh, because um, uh, many of this type of findings and studies that tried to test this turned out not to be replicable. So I would, I would try to be more careful and cautious and say that uh, theoretically, it seems very plausible that pessimists would definitely react to the world dif uh, differently, uh, but um, we probably need more work to really test it in uh, greater detail. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and about personality in general, do we already have uh, any good evidence for us to conclude if personality traits or perhaps some specific personality traits also influence how we experience emotion or, or not? Uh, for personality, the evidence depends on the level of analysis. Uh, if you look at the questionnaires, uh, the uh, classic by now uh, distinction of uh, personality into so-called big five or some similar constructs includes uh, one dimension uh, that is either described as neuroticism or more recently as emotional stability is the opposite of neuroticism that is about emotions. So, you know, neurotic people by default are constantly worried, focusing on the negative and kind of uncertain, uh, whereas emotionally stable people, as the term suggests, uh, would not be as uncertain. So there, uh, the name of the whole dimension is based on observations that uh, uh, people with certain uh, tendencies, uh, they also tend, uh, with respect to their personality, uh, they they tend to react to the environment in a particular way emotionally. So that finding is, I think, fairly established for other personality dimensions. Um, well, okay, so one can, of course, talk about agreeableness. Agreeableness is uh, this tendency to be agreeable with other people, and that has consequences. And, uh, you know, they can be sometimes positive, they can be negative. But if you're in a conflictual situation, these people would, try to, uh, would likely uh, engage in other type of uh, emotional, emotion regulation strategies, those that would focus more on appeasing uh, the group, 
uh, as compared to disagreeable people who would not be focusing on those strategies. Instead of that, would probably just continue arguing with somebody. A very different uh, regulatory process. And another one that I would like to mention at the end, and that sort of goes beyond the uh, conceptualization of Big Five, but is often associated with uh, a lot of uh, reactions, is this notion of self-esteem. Uh, personally, as a, a person uh, studying cultures, I find this construct a little bit tricky because uh, I think it's a very North, North American sort of informed construct. So the notion of sort of that you have to focus on yourself and have a, uh, have a sense of self-worth and feel good about yourself all the time. And so if you feel good about yourself, you also report greater well-being in general. You feel, you feel better about life in general. So to me, that sounds like a very North American construct. Nevertheless, uh, that relationship has been established and it has implications both for your emotion regulatory strategies, for your general level of happiness, and for your relationships with other people. So uh, a high uh, or low self-esteem individuals who report feeling better or worse about themselves, or whose opinion of themselves is either good or bad, they react differently to uh, conflicts with their partners, uh, to um, you know challenges in their lives, uh, to stressful situations. So that is also one big area of research. Uh, the findings are pretty robust, I, th I think. Mm -hmm. And because you reference the big five, I would also like to ask you just briefly if you know if a trait like extroversion also would have some influence in how people would uh, regulate their emotions in a social context, for example. Ah, interesting. Well, you know, uh, the reason why I didn't mention extroversion uh, is because, and I, I kind of alluded to that with the with the self-esteem already is uh, because I think that for many of these processes, especially with personality, um, because most of them have been studied predominantly North American and maybe Western European context is often like Germans, or Brits and Americans, Canadians studying this stuff, but the world is much larger than that, right? And so then the question is, what if you come from a culture where being extroverted, for instance, is not encouraged. In North America, being extroverted is great because that's that's one of the traits that will make you successful in life. Because you expect it to be extroverted, you expect to be already, like the prototype of an American is somebody who is extroverted. But that's not necessarily the prototype in many other cultures. And um, I can see a lot of people in South America who may be very extroverted. I can see a lot of people in South Asia who would not be very extroverted. Uh, or uh, in Africa. And so the, then the question becomes like, is there some kind of a cultural fit? So, you know, maybe you're highly extroverted and in this environment that would have a positive consequence uh, and uh, your reactions then would, uh, because they're culturally sanctioned, uh, would be uh, very much in line with uh, how you feel. Uh, so you you would uh, approach and regulate your emotions differently, probably upregulate your positive affect, you downregulate your negative affect, uh, and so on. But then the same type of person with the same sort of personality profile of extroversion in another cultural context that does not encourage sort of standing out and screaming, I'm the leader in the best, <laughs> as Americans sometimes do, uh, instead of that, uh, you probably would uh, experience as an extrovert a great deal of emotional suppression. You would be constantly trying to downregulate yourself. In fact, you may feel worse than somebody who is an introvert. And so that type of idea of cultural fit, I think, is very, very important. It has not been studied as much as it probably should be, um, in part because uh, uh, North American researchers are often myopic and focus mostly on themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, we have that weird problem, right, with many studies done in psychology, unfortunately. Right. But let's now move to the second part of the interview and talk a little bit about wisdom. So, first of all, uh, what is the difference between being intelligent and being wise? Well, uh, wisdom uh, is a topic that can can mean many things again. So we're talking about big topics today, so emotion, culture, wisdom. And um, the main difference is that somebody who is intelligent uh, 
uh, can be incredibly uh, self-serving and myopic. So intelligent people are not free of bias and uh, they uh, have a free card to be assholes. And you would not necessarily think of wise people as somebody, uh, an asshole would not be the first attribute uh, that you would think of when you think of a wise person, right? In fact, you would probably think somebody who is the opposite of that. Uh, so that's probably one of the best ways to sort of very briefly describe the difference. But more specifically, uh, for instance, what you could do if you're in, uh, if intelligent people are uh, equally, if not even more, subject to so-called confirmation bias. Um, and uh, now the definition of wisdom is often that you're not showing as much bias. You're not as biased. You have a a wise judgment, a sound judgment. You try to uh, avoid uh, these pitfalls. Now, what does confirmation bias mean? It means that um, when you start thinking about if you're right or wrong about an issue, you may generate a lot of arguments in support of your position. And depending on how many you generate, you may believe, irrespective of you being right or wrong, uh, that you're right. Or wrong. So let's say you, you generated 10 different arguments in support of your position, um, you may start believing uh, that you're right more so than if you generate just three. Okay, now a smart person and highly intelligent person would be very likely to generate those 10 instead of three because he's smarter. Doesn't mean that he's right uh, and he will start believing his own opinion more. And we see that a little bit in politics now, of course, like people, uh, very smart people uh, uh, producing very polarizing results around the world. Uh, so the difference there is that intelligence uh, is not necessarily focused on the social interactions. Uh, intelligence is focused on uh, finding efficient solutions optimizing towards solving the problems with least effort uh, and uh, finding the best solution for yourself or whatever you define as being of importance to you in a given moment. Whereas wisdom is often not about yourself. It's about being, it's less about being rational, so to say. It's more about being reasonable, about interacting between uh, uh, trying to find a balance between your interests and interests of the group. Mm -hmm. Okay, and just to establish a quick bridge between this topic and the previous one, that is emotion regulation, would you say that uh, being able to properly regulate our emotions is also a factor that goes into us becoming wise or, or not? Um, well, I think uh, the, it depends on what we talk about, uh, um, because, uh, for instance, um, even when you look at intelligence, uh, what it shares with wisdom in common and what it shares with successful, efficient emotion regulation in common is this very basic process of being able to switch and uh, uh, keep information in your head. Uh, uh, psychologists often describe this as some kind of self-regulatory capacity or uh, the scientific term here is executive functioning. And so this executive functioning is something that's highly correlated with intelligence, but also related to wisdom, of course, because you need that basic step in order to switch between different environments, navigate them and so on. And the executive functioning is important for emotion regulation. So that's where the similarity Ends probably because then when you look specifically at uh, intelligent people, intelligent people are not necessarily happy in their lives. And we, each of us can generate a lot of examples of very smart but very miserable people who can't regulate themselves, who say stupid things. I mean, I don't know about Donald Trump, but I mean, I'm think, I think he's not that stupid. I think he's probably very smart, but he's definitely not good at regulating his emotions. Uh, right? So if you're looking at what happened today with the White House, um, I mean, that could apply to any day. So I don't even know if it doesn't matter what day we are recording this. Is. I th I'm sure this will continue in the future as well. Uh, but uh, for... Uh, so for wisdom, we know that uh, the broad concept of wisdom sometimes even theoretically includes the notion of emotion regulation. My um, 
approach is a little bit humbler because I think uh, we have to be more specific. So I particularly look at reasoning. But what I see then is that uh, in the empirically, when we look at research, um, uh, the reasoning components of wisdoms is kind of be able to balance your judgments, uh, your personal preferences, preference of other people, uh, that there is a tendency uh, to uh, also regulate your emotions better uh, among the people who are more likely to use this type of wise reasoning. And uh, another thing that we found recently in a paper that just uh, uh, came out in Journal of Experimental Psychology is that I'm often asked, and here's an, uh, the, the, the reason why I actually did this work, I'm often asked about wisdom and emotion regulation, and uh, I'm often asked in a way that, you know, surely people who are wise are people who are not becoming emotional, right? And I'm saying, haven't seen that in my work yet. So in fact, these people report high intensity of the emotions. It's not like that they're suddenly becoming like, you know, Spock from Star Trek or something like that. Just a completely rational, but void of any human emotion. That's not what we think of a wise person. Maybe some of us do, but uh, most of us don't. So I did uh, quite a bit of work on that. And what we found is that uh, actually there is no uh, systematic relationship to intensity of your emotions. In fact, in many situations, people who reason wisely, they report fairly intense emotions. Um, but what is happening at the same time is that um, the same people also report a greater variety of emotions at the same time. So instead of just focusing on one and ignoring the rest, emphasizing the intensity of that single one, uh, wiser people, uh, people who re uh, report reasoning wisely, they uh, also uh, acknowledge a wide range of emotional experiences. I think generally this is sort of a little bit goes back to sort of like talk uh, talking about emotion research. One of the things that we often neglect is that uh, when we uh, study emotions, we often reduce it either to some kind of six emotions or just to intensity and balance. But of course, emotions are very diverse. And uh, when you ask somebody, how many emotions did you experience throughout the day? They would not say you just experience intensity. Or they would give you a very wide range of emotions. Right? So what this work suggests is that the wiser people are more likely to report a wider range of emotions, which can be very adaptive for emotion regulation because different emotions can provide different pieces of information about the environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and now another question, because I, I don't know if this is a bias that people tend to have or not, but we tend to think generally that as people age, as people get older, that they become wiser with time. But is, is that really the case or not? And if so, in what aspects? Oh, um, you know, this is really interesting because uh, there is this saying with age comes wisdom, at least in English. Uh, and I think uh, the bias is true for many languages uh, and for many cultures, uh, including uh, Asian cultures, uh, Eastern European, Western European and in North America. Um, we just don't know yet. So, which sounds weird because the whole study of wisdom in psychology started by people who were interested in this question from the very beginning in 1970s and in the throughout the 80s and then in the 90s and then in 2000s if there is a single question that pretty much every wisdom researcher focused on one way or another it was the question how it relates to aging but we don't know my first paper was on aging and wisdom and yet i don't know and the reason why we don't know is, um, and this goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, is that all of this work, with very minor exceptions, is based on uh, just group differences. And nobody tracks the same people over time, which you need to do in order to really understand the aging process. So you're subject to so-called ecological fallacy. You interpret group differences as change effects. So. When you look at group differences, because they can mean so many things, some studies, including some of my studies, 
suggest that older adults are wiser than younger adults. Other studies, including some of the studies that I have done again, suggest that there is no difference. And then there is some work uh, that suggests that, in fact, younger adults are wiser. So then the question becomes, how come? What exactly is going on there? And uh, so one of the most interesting explanations so far, I would say, is that often it's experience specific. So what we often forget is that there are different contexts that older and younger adults are surrounded by. And, uh, you know, if you ask an older person to solve a young adult's problem, I mean, it's been a while since they've been in that situation. They probably have never been in that situation because culture changes too. So if you ask them about, you know, marriage or uh, a rent, uh, a problem between the landlord and uh, you paying rent. And all the adults living in seniors' homes or who paid off their house or live in their, have lived in their home for the last 50 years, they have not that much experience with that. So they have a lot of experiences, but the experiences are domain specific. And similarly, Younger adults dealing with older people's problems will probably not be that wise either. So that's something that uh, research tends to suggest. You look at the domain specificity of effects, that, that's a pretty big effect there. Uh, but as I said, bottom line is uh, it's just a mess. Uh, the question uh, cannot really be answered with the uh, studies that have been conducted because you always uh, for instance, the studies that I have done where I did find differences, I never know is this because uh, the study was done in North America and we compare the generation of uh, older adults who, um, well, they're so-called baby boomers, and the baby boomers have a very interesting uh, cultural history because uh, they lived in a fairly affluent environment. They focused more on the social issues. They lived through this kind of social justice period in the United States. And they're generally more socially oriented as compared to some generations that followed later where people are much more self-centered. So like the generation me that is in North America um, and I think in Western Europe as well, sort of the um, how old would they be? Like about 30, like my age, like my generation, much more self-centered than the baby boomer generation. So then you examine them and you don't know, is this an aging effect or is this uh, a baby boomer versus generation me effect? And that's uh, something that you can only address by examining uh, the same people over time. And that has not been done. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and there's uh, a thing like self-reflection and the way we think about ourselves. Uh, is, is it also part of the equation in regards to wisdom? Absolutely. So self-reflection um, or sort of like have, have a sense of meaning about who you are and soaring your life, looking back at your life and try to... Uh, create a coherent narrative. In fact, for many people, that is one of the hallmarks of wisdom, being comfortable in your skin. Sort of a wise person is to some extent the one who made peace with his or her past. Um, so that's something that I would say uh, is definitely part of the equation. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so what are some of the best approaches that we could that you could tell us about uh, that people could adopt to become wiser? Oh, that's a million dollar question. Uh, if I knew uh, in uh, much detail uh, beyond some of the initial studies that we have done, I probably could make a lot of money on the side. Uh, but <laughs> so a lot of there are a lot of self-help books that try to convince uh, the readers that they know the answer to this question. Uh, the uh, the hidden truth is that none of them have a clue because none of them have done any evidence-based research to address it. Um, and in fact, uh, until um, I started doing experiments on this topic, like rigorous. Uh, experiments with uh, experimental within or between subject designs. Uh, nobody has done anything to really uh, address this question with respect to wisdom. So we are still in the onset, but what we know 
is that, uh, what? well, for instance, one strategy that seems to be effective is uh, the strategy of uh, reflecting on yourself in the third person. So instead of, for instance, when I face a critical decision, difficult decision, instead of saying, what will I do? How will I solve this issue? I would say, what would Igor do? How would Igor solve this issue? So I would talk to myself in the third person. And, uh, or I would visualize myself through some kind of a third person perspective, like through a camera looking at me instead of through my own eyes. And what that does is that it shifts at least temporarily for a brief period of time, uh, people's uh, tendencies. Uh, towards uh, 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 approaching things from this kind of less self-focused perspective, uh, towards uh, uh, approaching it from this kind of bigger picture perspective, that in turn uh, uh, activates uh, a greater ability to reason uh, for wise reasoning. So we do see that uh, in um, across many studies that we have done, that that's a very effective strategy. The effect is not huge. You will not suddenly become, you know, Buddha or pick your favorite wise person if you do that. But uh, there is a little effect in critical negative situations. Um, the other tendency that works is a ten, uh, temporal distance. So uh, instead of uh, it, it kind of works similarly, instead of, uh, for instance, uh, thinking, what will I do here now? You think, what would I do about this issue a year from now? And so if you sort of temp, uh, temporarily transport yourself to the perspective a year from now, and that uh, uh, shows some effects in the interpersonal conflict situation. So if what we have done is we looked at people who um, have a conflict with somebody, a very recent conflict, and how would they reflect on this conflict? Think about it a year from now versus here now. And they were more... Um, conflict resolution oriented, adaptively conflict resolution oriented, more forgiving uh, than uh, when uh, taking its kind of here now perspective. Then um, one final one maybe is the um, effect of being in different, putting yourself in different roles, different positions. It's important for organizations. So uh, I was always been interested in this kind of idea of um, but what happens when you when you are suddenly in a new position uh, and you have to take care of somebody that is not just you but somebody else? You know, you have a child or uh, you uh, get some uh, subordinates in in an organization. What ha happens to you? And so it turns out that. Um, if you, again, experimentally test the effects, like isolating all other factors that play a role there, um, then uh, what, uh, what helps is uh, that uh, this advisor role under some circumstances can boost your tendency to, uh, uh, to reason wisely. For instance, if you ask somebody, um, explain a political issue uh, to somebody who is less knowledgeable, let's say a 12-year-old, versus uh, a peer. Uh, that leads to less polarized responses, uh, to wiser, more integrative responses, uh, to uh, an issue that you feel very, very passionate about. So it reduces this kind of political polarization. Or just generally, if you look at the uh, effect of advice uh, giving over time, uh, there is an increment in your uh, wisdom later on, uh, and uh, it's bidirectional, but there is a stronger effect from giving advice to them. So they're suggesting that sort of like this advising role of somebody who is willing to explain things to people who are less knowledgeable could be beneficial. But the overall thought is that like, this is a very early work. Uh, we've done it only for the last 10 years. And... Uh, what I would like to emphasize here is that quite often uh, this effects they've been studied in a particular context, uh, namely conflictual contexts. And so I don't know if they would be equally beneficial, for instance, if you look at contexts in which uh, people are not going through a difficult issue. Maybe there you should not be distancing yourself and instead of that just enjoying life. And so what I'm trying to say here is that uh, I think a lot of these strategies, there is no kind of rule of thumb strategy. They're often domain specific. 
And the true wisdom is to figure out under what circumstances should you do X or you should do Y. That's something we haven't studied much yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we will be expecting more of those studies. Uh, and uh, I think we've been focusing a lot uh, on the individual when talking about wisdom in this case, but uh, can we also get some collective benefits from fostering wisdom in a given population and also from having uh, a community or a society composed of wiser individuals? That's an interesting uh, question that uh, we can only speculate about because it seems like currently many societies are going in opposite direction. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, kind of frightening. But if you think about it, if we were, if we were to speculate, uh, well, one thing that seems to happen is that if wisdom has this relationship to individual well-being, that can, of course, aggregate to the level of the, uh, of the group, of the society. So if people are uh, more satisfied with themselves than the so-called uh, gross national happiness uh, would be higher. Uh, what that is, is sort of this attempt to, instead of thinking only about affluence of the country in terms of money, uh, you would think about uh, the richness of the country in terms of uh, the uh, uh, well-being of its citizens. So that's one individual level benefit that can scale up to the society. Uh, then the other thing that uh, uh, is important is that, well, wiser people are probably, under some circumstances, uh, better managers. Uh, they, can, uh, they can help you uh, to work through issues. They can navigate different interests. That's sort of almost like part of the description of the wise individual, somebody who can navigate different issues. So if we had greater wisdom, we would probably have uh, somewhat better managers. And not only managers who would focus on the benefit of the company, but who would try to balance this kind of very complex set of interests that are currently emerging. If you're looking at climate change issues and debates that are currently going on in Poland, um, you know, uh, to what extent should I put my country or my organization forward as compared to the overall humanity? To what extent should I focus on the long-term interest over the short-term benefit? And will this long-term interest, uh, long-term benefit actually help? Uh, or maybe there are some hidden costs I don't think about because I try to solve it very, uh, very quickly and I don't think through this other contextual factor. So for instance, right now one good example of that where uh, a seemingly wise decision actually has a lot of pitfalls in the discussion of climate change. So there are a lot of uh, a push for electric cars, right? Uh, we don't want to have uh, 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 gasoline uh, and uh, 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 diesel-driven uh, cars anymore because they are polluting the environment. So let's focus on electric cars. Now, electric cars all have motors, uh, and they have to have a huge uh, a battery that would supply uh, this motor, right? Uh, now, the battery requires certain uh, uh, precious elements, and these precious elements are mined in Africa, uh, often using uh, uh, slave labor, uh, often using child slave labor, and that's something that's often not emphasized. In fact, I, until I started looking at it, I didn't even know about it, the extent to which uh, this type of oppression is currently happening, where we uh, emphasize, you know, combating climate change, but that comes at the expense of other uh, type of um, interests and where we almost ignore uh, the fact that human rights are violated uh, uh, because we just need the supplies. And so a wise person would try to uh, go possibly beyond that and try to manage all those issues, which I think could be of greater benefit to the society by focusing more on the common good instead of the individual and short-term interests. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so let's just hope that we're able to become wiser people in time to avoid certain catastrophes that are just around the corner, I would say, climate change being perhaps the major one. So, Dr. Grossman, just before we go, uh, would you like to tell people what are some of the best places on the internet for them to go there and check out more of your work? Oh, uh, well, uh, it, I'm all over internet, but I think uh, uh, if anybody is interested, uh, we, uh, on the website at the University of Waterloo, if you just look for uh, wisdom, uh, Google just Wisdom and Culture Lab, uh, you will definitely find uh, more information about uh, the research uh, in our lab, as well as the papers. Uh, most of them will be accessible. I try to make them accessible to people who uh, cannot afford paying the ridiculous fees by some of the journals. The other uh, uh, source, if you just want to go beyond that, um, uh, a colleague of mine from London uh, and I have a podcast show called On Wisdom, and it's available on all major platforms. So we try to uh, have guests uh, and discuss with them the pressing political issues as well as just uh, uh, try to bridge the scientific perspective and the common uh, uh, view perspective on anything related to philosophy, psychology, decision making. So if you're interested, just follow. Uh, again, you can find it online on Wisdom Podcast. And this is uh, something that we try to do to for the general audience. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of this video so that people can go and check check it out. So, Dr. Grossman, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was a great pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel last February and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Farrell Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Jolene, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, and Anne's Frederick Sunde. Thank you for all.